Titus chapter 3, there is an outline in the bulletin where you can track along. We're starting a new chapter, and we're starting a new section in the book of Titus. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that the Apostle Paul wrote this short letter, and he wrote it to his co-worker Titus, and you know Titus 1.5 says that Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete to put what remained into order. And so the idea is that uh, Paul had left Titus on Crete with these baby churches, these new churches, uh, just planted churches. And Titus's job was to shape them up and to put them into order. And for Titus, as you read this letter, that meant three things. It meant, number one, you need to establish right leadership within the church. It meant, number two, you need to make sure that right doctrine is being preached in the church, and that right doctrine centers on the gospel message, which we're going to talk about this morning. And then thirdly, and it is important that it's thirdly, uh, putting these churches into order involved right living for the people who were part of these churches. But the order matters, right leadership, right doctrine, and then lastly, right living. This morning, we're not leaving behind the leadership and the doctrine. Rather, we're building on the leadership and the doctrine as we begin to think about this morning and the next couple of weeks, what does it mean for us as the people of God to live out this right living that Paul describes to Titus in this book. I want to direct your attention to the first two words in chapter 3. In the ESV, the first two words are remind them, remind them. And when I read those two words, the first question that pops into my head is remind who? Now, it may seem obvious, but I just want to make sure we're on the same page. This reminder from Paul through Titus is to be given to the believers there on the island of Crete, the church members, the Christians. He's not reminding everyone on Crete about these things. He's reminding the people of God about these things. And the content of the actual reminder is what we're talking about this morning as we look at Titus chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. Here's the big idea of our very short passage. The gospel changes the way that we relate to authority and the way that we interact with others. The gospel, which we talked about last week, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, changes the way that we as Christians relate to authority, and it changes the way that we interact with other people. So I just want to say a couple of preliminary things before we read our passage. If your Bible's open, I just want you to physically see on the page that our passage, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, is surrounded on the back end and what we'll talk about next week. It's surrounded by gospel summaries. So we looked last week at Titus 2, 11 to 14. That's a summary of the gospel. And it's right before the passage that we're looking at this morning. And next week, we're going to look at Titus 3, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And it also is a summary of the gospel. And I'm saying to you that this is really important for the passage that we're about to talk about this morning. Before Paul says these things, he talks about the gospel. And after he says these things, he talks about the gospel. And this is the takeaway for you on the front end. If I don't understand the gospel, 
I don't need to try to understand Titus 3, 1, and 2. Because everything around it centers on the gospel. And if you haven't wrestled and come to grips with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you really can just click save on this sermon and come back to it later. We're going to let you stay. We're going to let you listen. You don't have to plug your ears. But it's really a sermon directed to people who have an accurate understanding and who have received into their lives the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm saying to you. As Paul details in these verses how we relate to authority, and as Paul details how we interact with other people, he is not telling us that if you do these things, God will love you. This is not a checklist. Americans like checklists. Give me a checklist. What do I do? One, two, three, four, five. Give them to me in order. If I do these things, here's the outcome. It's not a checklist. These things are not actions that we engage in so that God will love us or so that we can be Christian people. These things that we're talking about this morning are the result of the gospel. They're our response to the gospel, which means before we dig into these two verses and talk about authority and relating to other people, we have to be really clear about the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, you could read his summaries on either end. We talked about one last week. We'll talk about one next week. You could also just step back and say the gospel is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. I've shared with you recently that the gospel can be summarized in four simple statements. It's a a message that begins not with you, not with me, not with our church, but it begins with God. And we've sang this morning, if you were singing and thinking and paying attention, we've sang about the holiness of God this morning. God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He's unique, he's whole, he's complete, he's perfect, he lacks nothing. He's the creator, and everything else that exists is the creation. God's holy, he's an authority over us. You and I, human beings, we're sinners. We've fallen short. We've broken God's laws, we've transgressed his commandments, we failed to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our sin has separated us from God. We also sang about that just a moment ago. If your mind was engaged at the beginning of that last song we sang, we sang about a chasm that separates us from God. That's the result of sin in your life, separation from God. We sang about a mountain that is too high for us to climb. Our sin renders us unable to find our way back into a right relationship with God. So God is holy, we are sinners, and the answer to that dilemma is Jesus Christ. He's the eternal Son of God who in the fullness of time took on human flesh, walked on this earth, lived a life of perfect obedience even as He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So that at the end of his life, he could die as a substitutionary, sacrificial lamb for us. He's the lamb of God who laid down his life. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The only way you can benefit from this good news is to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. To confess your sin to God, to agree with God about your sin, to stop making excuses for your sin, blaming other people for your sin, trying to justify your sin, agree with God about your sin, confess it to Him, turn from it, and put your faith in the person, in the work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the promise. It's for every person in this room this morning. This is the promise. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no person, no person, who will repent of their sin, put their faith in Jesus, and find God holding them at arm's length because they're just too bad. That person does not exist. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. And for some of you, that's where you need to start this morning. Not necessarily with the the most thorough understanding of relating to authority and relating to others, although we're going to talk about that. You just need to start with that fundamental basic step of turning from your sin and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of salvation. If you'd like to visit with somebody about that this morning, one of our pastors would love to talk with you about it. That gospel message is the heart of right doctrine. It's the heart of the book of Titus. It's what right leadership ought to be teaching to the people of God. Not do these things and you'll be a good person, God will love you. But God loved you when you were a sinner and this is what he's done to make you his child. It's the heart of right doctrine, it's the message of right leadership, and it's the motivation for right living. And so this morning we're going to talk about right living uh, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Let's read these verses. We'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of His Word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Father, as your church, we gather together and we sit under the authority of your word. We pray that you would continue to guide our thinking and our feeling and our hearts and our response as we work through the book of Titus. We pray that we would be a church and that we would be people put into order. Lord, we pray that you would give us right leadership. We pray that you would give us a desire for right doctrine. Uh, We pray that you would be at work in us for right living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start off talking about authority. And it's probably good that we begin with an admission or a confession that in the United States of America, we don't do well with authority. Uh, We are not naturally people who are disposed to submit to authority. I don't know if you've been to Walmart lately or a middle school lately or on social media lately, but we're people who don't naturally submit to and respect authority. That's partly just our national DNA. Our nation was founded in literally a rebellion, and it was a rebellion led by people who said there is an authority over us, and we believe it to be an unjust, tyrannical authority that should not be over us, and those men and those women were willing to fight to overthrow that authority. The question of authority came up again in the United States in what we call the Civil War, it was a war, you understand the backstory of the Civil War, largely about authority. Does this group of people have the authority to own that group of people? And who has the authority to answer that question? Do the states have that authority or does the federal government have that authority? Again, we fought over questions 
of authority. Now, we haven't had a, a revolutionary war or a civil war in a long time, but we're still wrestling with the question of authority. Today, there is a postmodern worldview that is gaining traction, and it is only increasing with each younger generation. And this postmodern worldview, in part, I'm not trying to say everything about postmodernism, but I'm telling you one part of a postmodern worldview is the idea that anyone who has power or authority is by definition oppressive and unjust and mean and cruel. And the reason they have that power, that authority, is that they have oppressed other people to get it. And the reason that they're able to hang on to that authority is that they're oppressing other people so that they might hang on to their authority. I would submit to you it's a very unbiblical way of thinking about power and authority. And I would submit to you that the Bible, when it speaks about our relationship to authority, challenges American culture and American assumptions every step of the way. And so our goal this morning is not to line up with a particular cultural view of power or authority, but to listen to what the Bible has to say about this topic. So as Christians, how should we relate to authority? The answer in Titus chapter 3 is quite simple. We should respect authority. Christians should be people who by default are not rebellious, but who by default respect authority. If you want to lay a full biblical foundation for this, you have to go back to the beginning. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is an authority in the universe, and you cannot escape that reality. If you don't begin with that foundational worldview building block that there is a God, He created you, He owns you, and He is the highest authority in your life, everything else in your life will be skewed as you think about authority. The Bible says that that God, the Creator God, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, gave commandments to His people. Ten commandments to summarize what He wanted from them. The fifth commandment, if you're familiar with the list, says that you ought to honor who? Your father and your mother. That's a commandment about authority. The first place human beings meet authority in God's design is in the home. And if you look around our world today and you see people on social media, in middle schools, high schools, on university campuses, in the workplace, as citizens, if you see people who do not respect authority, odds are there's been a breakdown on the idea that there is a God and He's the highest authority and that authority ought to exist, it ought to begin within the home with a respect an honoring of father and mother. When you lose those foundational pieces, there's consequences. Consequences for a family, consequences for a community, consequences for a culture and a nation. And we're living with some of those consequences now. We should respect authority. Jeremiah 29. i just give you some biblical examples here. We won't turn to these passages. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah was getting the people ready to go live in exile. They were leaving Judah and they were moving to Babylon a wicked pagan nation. And Jeremiah said to those people who were going to live there, when you get there, you need to be good citizens. Don't just rebel against authority, Babylonian authority. You need to respect it. You don't need to do everything that they tell you to do, but you need to be respectful of authority, and you need to be good citizens. Daniel modeled this. 
Did Daniel do everything that he was told to do? No. But he wasn't continually defiant towards authority. He actually was a bureaucrat. He worked for the Babylonian government. Nehemiah modeled this. Esther modeled this. They lived under the Persian Empire. Jesus, Matthew 22, said that if you owe taxes, you ought to pay your taxes. If you owe taxes to Caesar, pay the taxes to Caesar. Paul said in Romans chapter 13 that you owe respect to the governing authorities, not just your taxes, but you owe respect to them, honor to them. Peter, 1 Peter 2 says something fascinating. He frames the whole discussion in terms of God's will for your life. And Peter says, it is actually God's will for you as a Christian that you show respect to governing authorities. That's just the default for Christian people. We are people, we're not anarchists at heart. We're people who understand that there is authority and that the ultimate authority establishes human authority and that we ought to respect authority. However... It's not the only thing the Bible says about our relationship with authority. So let's step back from Titus 3 that says, be submissive and be obedient and be ready for every good work. And let's just think broader and biblically about this question. And let's understand that the Bible recognizes there is a time and a place for what we'll call civil disobedience. The Bible recognizes this and you need to recognize it. Living in the time and the place in which you live, you need to understand this category, civil disobedience. How would we define that? I don't have anything on the screen, but I'll tell you how you ought to think about civil disobedience. It's a principled decision. It's not willy-nilly. It's not fly by the seat of your pants. It is a principled decision, a convictional decision to disobey certain laws or not pay certain taxes because doing so on a human level would mean disobeying God on a cosmic level. And this is the kicker. This is really the kicker, the part we don't like too much. It means that you're willing to live with the consequences of your decision. It's a principal decision to disobey human authority because you'd rather obey God, the Creator, and in that decision, you are willing to live with the consequences of that decision. So just a few examples. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The Babylonian government demanded that they bow down and worship an idol. Did they do it? No, they said, we cannot do that. We cannot go against the first and second commandments of our God, who is the highest authority, to obey you. So if you've got to throw us into the fire, you've got to throw us into the fire. God might save us, he might not save us. We're not going to do it. We'll live with the consequences. We're not going to do it. What about the apostles in Acts 4 and 5? The Jewish authorities told the apostles, you need to stop talking about Jesus. That was a problem because Jesus had just told them, talk about me. Go everywhere and tell everyone about me. And now the human authority, the Jewish authority said, you need to stop talking about Jesus. And what did they say? They said, look, you do what you need to do. We have to obey God rather than man. We're going to do what the Lord Jesus Christ commanded us to do. And we understand there may be a consequence, but we can't obey man at the expense of disobeying God. 
Revelation chapter 1, we've been studying Revelation in our men and women's Bible studies. Where was John when he wrote that letter? He was on the island of Patmos, a prison colony. Why was he there? Well, he says in chapter 1, he was there on account of the Word of God and the testimony, his witness to the faith in Jesus Christ. The Roman authorities told him to stop talking about Jesus. He understood that that would be disobedience to Jesus. So he said, I'm going to obey God rather than man, and I'm going to live with the consequences. You have to get this balanced. You have to get this balanced as a Christian. You can't just go around pushing back against every authority as if every authority is terrible and I'm not going to do what anybody says. You start with the position of I'm going to respect authority. I'm going to give honor where it's due. I'm going to pay taxes where it's due. I'm going to be obedient and submissive and ready for every good work. Titus 3.2. But you understand, and as Christian people living in the year 2023, you better understand quick that there may come a line that you can't cross. And there may come a time when you have to say, I can't do that thing that the authorities are telling me to do because to do that thing would be disobedience to God. One last comment on this as you think about authority. I'll try to be brief. The government you live under today is very different than the government Paul and Titus lived under 2,000 years ago. You live in the United States of America, depending on how much of a civics nerd you are, we're a constitutional republic or a constitutional democracy. In theory, the Constitution is the highest authority in our nation. We have a system of checks and balances in which you get to participate. You get to vote for leaders and representatives and presidents and all sorts of people and laws and initiatives. You have a way to participate in the government that... You live underneath. You understand Paul and Titus didn't have that. Caesar was not taking public opinion polls. What do you think? How do they feel? What should I do? It was a dictatorial rule. We don't live under that system. You have a way to be involved in the government that you live under. Do you have ultimate control over it? No, but you have a way to be involved in it. And you should not take that opportunity and that right and that privilege lightly. You should be involved in it. And this is where I'm really driving. There's a, an idea floating around the world today and all the culture wars we're wrestling with where people say to Christians, you Christians, you're the worst. You just want to impose your morality on everybody else. You just want to legislate what you think the Bible says and make everybody else do it. That's ridiculous. How dare you? Who do you think you are? That's not your place. That's not the kind of place where we live in the United States of America. And they're trying to silence and shame Christians into being completely, allegedly, morally neutral in terms of government and policies and laws. This is what I want you to understand. Every law, every policy that has ever been enacted in this country is legislating morality. That's what laws are by definition. The question in the United States is, are we going to legislate morality or not? That's not the question. The question is, what morality are we going to legislate? And you'd better be sure, as somebody who has a means of being involved in the government that you live under, that you should use your God-given rights to vote and participate in that system for the end 
of goodness and godliness, not for sin and immorality. And you shouldn't be silenced by this childish argument that Christians just want to impose a morality. That's what all laws are, is an imposition of morality. Do not murder. We're going to make a law about that. Why? Because we think it's morally wrong. Every law is the imposition of morality. Now, we've thought about this in Titus, submissive, obedient, ready for every good work. We've thought about it biblically, the idea of civil disobedience. Let's think about it through a gospel lens. The gospel changes the way we relate to authority because Jesus is Lord. He's Lord, which means He's sovereign over every human authority. He's the ultimate authority. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, but Jesus said, before He said anything about making disciples, He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. He's the highest authority. He's Lord. And He's sovereign over every human authority. That means there's no human authority that has the right to tell you to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no human government that has the right or the authority rightfully to tell you to disobey what's been revealed to the people of God in the Scriptures. And it means there's no human authority that exists outside of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And there's some tension in that, isn't there? There's some tension in that. The authorities that exist, exist because God has allowed them and ordained them to exist. And your default position ought to be respect and honor. You ought to be prepared for instances where civil disobedience is called for, but ultimately you recognize Jesus as Lord. Caesar is not Lord. The Constitution is not Lord. The stars and stripes are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So that's how we think through, at least in part, our relationship with authority. Let's talk about other people. Are you ready for some deep theological terminology? How should we interact with others? We should be kind to others. We should be kind to others. Look what Paul says to Titus in verse 2. Remind them about authority, verse 1, and remind them, verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. I agree with the commentators who say that when Paul says, we'll just take these in turn, when Paul says, speak evil of no one, he's talking about your motive in your heart when you talk about another person. And essentially what Paul is saying is you should not be malicious in your speech when you talk about other people. To be malicious in one's speech means that you want to say something about another person that will hurt them or harm them. It might hurt their reputation. It might hurt their opportunities. It might harm their relationships. It might be true or not true, but your intent in saying it out loud to another person is to bring harm on somebody else. To speak about somebody with malicious intent is to speak about somebody in a way that makes them look bad or foolish so that you, by implication, of course, look good and wise. Malicious intent in your speech. And Paul says you should speak evil of no one. 
you understand that it's possible to speak evil of a person with high volume, loud voice, and anger and rage and a quiver in your speech, and maybe your face gets red and your hands clench up and you're just ready to explode. It's possible to speak evil of people in that way. You also understand it's possible to speak evil about somebody calmly, quietly, and to frame it all in the lie that you're concerned for them. You know how Christians do this. We ask people to pray for someone. Would you pray for so-and-so? What's going on? Why do I need to pray? Well, let me tell you. And what comes out of your mouth is not raging, screaming, yelling, ugly vitriol. But do you know what it is? It's speaking evil about other people. The way that you do it is irrelevant. The fact that you do it is the issue. So I'm just going to be real honest with you. I've been a pastor for 17 years. Pastored three churches. Been a member of two other churches before that. Here's my conclusion. This isn't out of Titus. This is just me. Okay? Christians talk too much about other people. They have too much to say about other people's business. And usually it's not communicated in anger and screaming and yelling. Sometimes it is. Usually it's just a quiet whisper, something between friends, something I just want you to be aware of. It's too much talking. It's too much listening. There's too much talking. It means there's also too much listening to what's being said. I think it's fascinating the way Paul lays this out to Titus in verse 2. He says, first, speak evil of no one. What does he say second? Avoid what? Quarreling. You know why he says it in that order? It's because Proverbs 26.20 is true. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there's no whisperer, quarreling ceases. It's amazing how that works. Less talking about other people in their business, less fighting, less quarreling. I don't know if you're aware of this. We had a plugged-in class. We presented them with a packet of information about our church, all sorts of things to expect, what we ask from them. There's a page in here that's called Membership Covenant. It has five sections. And one of the sections right in the middle says, I'm going to protect the fellowship of this church. And right there in the middle of this, if you're a member, you've signed this. If you're not a member, to be a member, you sign this. Right there in the middle, it says, part of being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, I'm going to refuse to spread negative talk. It's right there in the membership covenant. Speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling. Some of you are thinking, man, He's really serious. Something must have happened. Somebody must have said something. Nothing happened. Nobody said anything. It's just that serious to the unity of a church. Speak evil of no one. Do you want to be a church put into right order? You probably need to close your mouth when it comes to other people's business. Do you want to be a church put into right order? 
you probably need to be serious about avoiding quarreling. And the best way to do that is to remove the whispering. Don't speak evil. Don't quarrel. Two positives. Two positives in verse 2. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. In other words, be kind. Be kind. i just give you a few biblical verses for your reflection. You can think about these. Matthew eleven nineteen. People knew Jesus to be a friend of sinners. He was a kind person. Whatever you think about Jesus, whatever you imagine it would be like to be around him, you understand he was kind to people and people thought of him as a friend. Do you usually think about your friends as people who talk too much about you behind your back? Usually no. People talked about Jesus and they said he's a friend. He's not going to talk about you behind your back. He's not going to quarrel. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, fruit. It's not a buffet where you take the banana and leave the kiwi. Fruit, singular, of the Spirit. What does the Spirit bring out in your life? It's not only one or two or whichever ones you're good at naturally. It's all of these. Love, joy, peace, avoid quarreling, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, be gentle, and self-control. We talked about self-control last week. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 4 says it like this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you want to be part of a church put into order? Don't speak evil of anyone. Be kind and be tender-hearted and forgive people. Colossians, you can look up the verse in Colossians. It says, put off all sorts of unkind things. It's the negative counterpart to Ephesians 4. Look what Hebrews 12 says. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peace with everyone. If that's going to happen within a church, we have to be kind people. We live in a postmodern culture. We've talked about that. And in a postmodern culture, there's this idea that anything goes, it's all good, your idea, my idea, pick an idea, it's all fine. And many times in a postmodern culture, as Christian people, we get certain things thrown back in our face. And one of those is, who do you think you are to tell us how to live our lives, to judge us, to pretend like you know right and wrong? And so I want to back up from Titus 3, and I just want to say something biblically that would qualify this or help us understand this better. The Bible recognizes the need to rebuke evil. Not speaking evil of other people and not quarreling, and being gentle, and being kind, and being courteous to everyone does not mean that as the people of God, we can't call evil, evil. The book of Isaiah warns about that. In Isaiah 5, it says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those people. I'm aware that Matthew 7 includes Jesus saying the words, do not judge lest you be judged. Probably the most commonly quoted verse in all of the Bible today, even more than John 3.16. Thou shalt not judge. You read it in context, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, it's pretty clear that what Jesus is saying is not, see that log and speck in your brother's eye? Leave it alone, it's no big deal. 
That's not what he says. What he says is, deal with what's in your own eye, then help your brother, your friend, your church member. Don't leave them with a log or a speck in their eye. Just make sure you deal, you're dealing with your issues first. And then help them. My goodness, don't leave them with a log or a speck in their eye. 1 Timothy 3 says one of the qualifications for a pastor or an elder is that he must not be quarrelsome. Avoid quarreling. But 2 Timothy 3 also says that the man of God, pastor, an elder, an overseer, has to be ready to use the word of God which is breathed out by God for the purposes of reproof and correction. Of saying, this is a bad thing, this is an evil thing, and this is something that you ought to turn from. So there is a prophetic role for the people of God to play in the world in calling evil evil and being clear where the Bible is clear. Now, think about this through a gospel lens and we'll end. The gospel changes the way we interact with others because Jesus came to die for sinners, not to pick a fight with his enemies. In the biblical sense, you and I are the ones who have picked the fight. God's the authority, He's the creator, He made us, and we're the ones who pushed back on His authority. Our sin places us under His wrath, His anger, His fury. And notice what Paul says to Titus in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, the grace of God has appeared. Not the wrath of God has appeared. Not the anger of God, the fury of God, the judgment of God, the righteousness of God, the vengeance of God. There will be a day coming where all of those things will appear. But on this day, it was the grace of God that appeared. That's the gospel summary before our passage. Look at the gospel summary after our passage. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says that He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. We don't have any of those but according to His own mercy. His mercy saved us. God's mercy is God not giving you what you rightly deserve. It's God withholding what is your due. God's grace is His positive, proactive, giving you the opposite of what you actually deserve. He is withholding judgment in His mercy, and He's giving us His goodness. He's giving us salvation. In His grace. These truths have the power to change your eternity. These simple gospel truths. That the grace of God has appeared and salvation has been provided through God's mercy. It has the ability to change your eternity. But more than the zip code where you'll live spiritually forever... These truths today have the power to change you. To change you. Your eternity? Yes. Is that important? It's very important. But when these truths change your eternity, they also change you. They change the way that you relate to authority in the world. They change the way that you interact with other people in the world. They change you individually, they change your family, and they change our church. What does it mean to be a church put into order? Titus, I left you there to put what remained into order. What does it mean to be put into order? It means you have right leadership, 
It means you have right doctrine centered on the gospel. And it means the result of that is right living amongst the people of God.